investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome investors and podcast listeners to episode 41 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kesslering. Today is Friday, November 22nd, 2019. Back from a trip this week, was in Montreal earlier this week for some client meetings and yesterday in New York. I spoke at a conference there, but it's nice to be back chatting with you guys about some really important market events that happened over the past week. We're going to chat about Charles Schwab. They're in talks to acquire rival TD Ameritrade which would create just a brokerage behemoth with nearly five trillion in assets. Is this the result of the battle to zero commissions? Former Uber CEO, Travis Kalanick, he sold nearly 1.5 billion of Uber shares as the IPO lockup expired. We're gonna chat about the lockup IPO dynamics and what investors need to be concerned about when that happens. The Big Short 2.0, Carl Icahn bets against shopping malls in an intricate bet with credit default swaps. Will it pay off for the billionaire? And finally, we're gonna chat about hedge fund legend, Lewis Bacon. He shuttered his hedge fund more capital after a 30 year run. Was he the last of a dying breed of non-systematic managers? So we have a big potential M&A deal on our hands with brokerage firm giant Charles Schwab in preliminary discussions, which are now public to acquire TD Ameritrade for $26 billion. Now this combination would create an online discount brokerage behemoth with about 5 trillion in client assets. So a merger between the two would allow the companies to cut costs. It's really a play on synergies. So they're looking to cut costs and then the merged entity would be in a greater position to sell ancillary services such as wealth management, etc. since the entire trading commission business has gone to zero, which was a really interesting dynamic that we chatted about in the past uh, month or two. Charles Schwab moved to zero trading commissions. It was really where the industry was going. They had been steadily dropping over the past couple decades and with the emergence of internet online trading in the late 90s. And now over the past few years, you had an upstart Robinhood, which came out with zero trading commissions. And they've had a lot of success in signing up clients and these uh, more established firms really saw the writing on the wall and Charles Schwab was the first to implement this zero trading commissions but that really you know left let the horses out of the barn and their competitors including TD Ameritrade really had no choice but to follow and it really hurt TD Ameritrade because they were much more reliant than Schwab on trading commissions. I believe Schwab is at single digit percentage of revenue, roughly 7%, but Ameritrade is north of 20%. So it really- 36%, I believe. Right, so it really punished their stocks. A very clever uh, M&A move by Schwab here is to punish Ameritrade stock and then come in and try to acquire it. Classic move and uh, kudos to them for, for attempting it. Uh, So effectively, they forced their hand on this zero commission trade deal, uh, just given Ameritrade's higher reliance on commissions. And we're we're seeing the dynamic there. But if you're TD Ameritrade, 
what do you do, right? The competitive dynamics and in the entire industry has just really been turned upside down. So they really need to consider some sort of strategic alternatives here. The other thing is there's big implications for a Canadian bank TD because they own a 43.2% stake in, Amer in Ameritrade in addition to their big footprint in U.S. retail banking. But TD's shares have underperformed their Canadian peers, the other big Canadian banks, since this whole brokerage battle broke out on the trading commission side. So TD's share price has increased just 1.8% compared to average gains 4.3% for the other big six banks since Schwab did drop commissions to zero, which forced TD Ameritrade to follow in addition to other competitors such as Fidelity. However, gotta warn investors on this deal, it is just a speculation at this point, so it's not a definitive deal. I remember in the original article, which was uh, which CIBC broke, I believe, they indicated that they expected a deal to be done and announced by yesterday, but it still hasn't come out yet. So it is a pre-arbitrage speculation at this point. The other thing to keep in mind that it would be subject to pretty intense antitrust scrutiny because this is a four to three consolidation, taking four major players down to three, which the antitrust regulators, whether it be the DOJ or the FTC typically do not look kindly upon. However, one analogous deal that, that is kind of making its way through the system right now is uh, T-Mobile and Sprint, and that one looks like it could uh, get the green light. It certainly has gotten approval from the FTC. They're kind of at their last roadblocks there. So it's not uh, against the rules to do a four to three consolidation, but it does require you know a significant amount of effort to get through that antitrust scrutiny. Nonetheless, some share action here. You had shares of Schwab surging about 8%, while TD Ameritrade stock rallied more than 20% on the news. And then we have this left out party, E-Trade. Their stock actually fell by more than 8%, reflecting perhaps investors thinking maybe they'll get acquired, but now that seems to be off the table, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and with regards to the antitrust issues, uh, I did see some sell-side research from, I believe it was K KBW, uh, that had uh, come out with some research just showing that the, the issue isn't just the three to four, it's other segments that they're involved in. So things such as custody of RIA, assets um which you know there's really only three main players and so that would be taking you know a, where i believe they they had estimated that charles schwab was at 50 percent of the market um td ameritrade being at around the 13 to to 20 percent range with another player that was 25 percent right so the antitrust regulators would be concerned that if they consolidate market share to 60 percent then there is less consumer choice leading to potentially higher and anti-competitive pricing for customers absolutely and which is very interesting interesting because if you're thinking about it just from the customer standpoint the only reason that this transaction is coming about is because of trading commissions going down to zero which is inherently good for customers right. but the antitrust regulators they do have to look at it on a long-term basis because if one come if, if the companies you know they diminish one line of their business to then build up significant pricing power in another line that net isn't good for consumers another interesting thing that I want 
wanted to point out was just in reference to Charles Schwab, the founder of Charles Schwab, founder and, and former CEO. In early November, after they made their announcement uh, that they would stop charging commissions, uh, he went on stage at an impact investing conference to basically let investors know that he had always hated commissions and that, you know, he never liked them then, he doesn't like them now, which I found was very interesting coming from him as there's really no, likely no one else that has increased their net worth as much as he has by charging commissions. Yeah, perhaps some virtue signaling there and acting pretty uh, sanctimoniously uh, with the elimination of commissions, but I'm sure that uh, message shouldn't be taken to heart. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, his his net worth is nine point two billion dollars, and the large you know the lion's share of that is due to charging commissions. Um, but you know, strategically from T, from Charles and Charles Schwab, the company it's a brilliant strategy. You know, uh, they do something that will impact. That yes, it does impact their own revenues, but impacts their competitors more, and take advantage of that by acquiring them on a, at a depressed level. Right. So we're going to be watching the news wires closely this weekend because. Because I find typically these blockbuster deals tend to get wrapped up over a weekend and announced Monday morning or Sunday evening. We do see an abnormally large amount of M&A deals announced uh, for Monday's open. So it's something that perhaps will be a definitive deal when we get into the office on Monday. Wanted to chat about Uber's co-founder, Travis Kalanick. He actually sold nearly $600 million of Uber shares this week, taking the total tally of his share sales since the IPO lockup expired to nearly 1.5 billion. And that's recent because the IPO period just expired November 6th. And how that works is when you do an IPO, which Uber did in May, typically there's a six month holding period in which insiders such as Travis Kalanick, who was famously pushed out as the company's CEO prior to its IPO, insiders like that are forced and they're unable to sell their shares until the six months is up, which happened on November 6th. And he isn't shy about selling out of his shares he continues to hold roughly 1.3 billion of shares, so he's sold over half of his stake, uh, which is really interesting. He's actually moved on to a new venture called Cloud Kitchens. He's invested pretty heavily into that, so that seems to be where his focus is. I have some other transactions by insiders. So co-founder Garrett Camp, he's sold only about 20 million shares this month, which is a small fraction of his stake. Then conversely, new CEO Dara Khosrowshahi has bought more than $6 million in shares this week, according to filings. So it's a really interesting dynamic. And we just wanted to chat about how shares react into and after an IPO lockup, because it, it is a really interesting dynamic. Yeah, and just to be clear on the actual dynamic, the lockup is an arrangement between the insiders and the IPO underwriters. This isn't a regulatory issue. This is strictly a contract between the IPO underwriters. And if our listeners will remember, we did discuss when Beyond Meat, they were actually their insiders were actually allowed to break that lockup by the underwriters and sell into a secondary offering. That was a number of months ago. Right. I, I remember another example being GoPro. That was another heavily hyped low float IPO that absolutely skyrocketed and the founder was able to get out of the lockup by donating it to charity and then selling it at highly inflated values. So it's something really to keep in mind. And we do have a, a number of examples where that, where that happened or you've had negative share price reaction after this IPO expiration. Absolutely. And 
With regards to the negative price reaction, it's typically with low float stocks that have also had a lot of positive sentiment during the IPO process. So the first one to point out would be uh, Beyond Meat as they increased their float as a percentage of shares outstanding from 21% at the initial IPO, so a very low float IPO, to 65% at lockup. And on it, with a lockup expiry, their share price actually decreased about 18%. Now it can't be completely attributable in this situation to just the lockup expiry as sell side analysts were reducing their expectations around the same time. So there's right. a little bit of bleed in there. I believe they announced quarterly results results around that time as well. Absolutely. Which uh, actually beat expectations though. So it's, yes, there's a lot of things going on there. But yeah, but yet had the negative sell side reaction as well. Uber, who didn't have a very positive IPO as well as Lyft, in those situations, Uber increased their float from 11% to 58% and the share price actually decreased 1.8% on expiry. Lyft, they increased their float from 13% to 70%. So in, this was a the most dramatic of the examples for increasing the float um, and that their share price decreased about 0.79%. Lastly being Tilray increasing a bit smaller in terms of their float increase from 13% to 21% but the share price decreased about 17% on expiry. Now why, why I wanted to highlight some of these examples isn't necessarily because I believe that there's an anomaly that you should go short ahead of the expiry. It's more so on the long side, and that's because, you know, this really isn't an easily exploitable trade to make as prior to expiry, not only are short locates a little bit more difficult, especially if it's a low float stock. Already. Meaning it's very expensive and difficult to short the stock. Yes. And, and the cost to borrow is just prohibitively high. So not only do you have to be right, but your thesis really needs to play out in that exact day. Right. And so the costs of the trade are quite expensive. So it's really interesting just from being, if you are along these names uh, to be aware of these lockup lock expiry. If you are looking to trade out of the name anyway, you know, perhaps using that prior to the lockup expiry would be a, a good solution. Right. And it's an interesting dynamic because it somewhat explains how some of these low float IPOs reach such overvalued, overheated levels where the stock just kind of skyrockets, such as we saw it on Tilray and Beyond Meat prior to IPO lockup expiry when the shares are brand new and there isn't large amount of float because you don't have that counterbalance of short sellers coming into the market. So it's a supply and demand issue where you have a lot of demand because it's heavily hyped, but the supply just isn't there. So what happens? Well, that pushes up the price. What that IPO lockup expiry does is it leads to a dramatic increase in supply, which economics 101 leads to lower prices. And as we've seen on a lot of these names, it's not guaranteed, but we did see it anecdotally. Tilray down what, 90%? Beyond mm -hmm. Meat down 80%? So there's been significant moves after these IPO lockups. So that's certainly something that IPO investors should be very aware of. Do we have the big short 2.0? Billionaire Carl Icahn, he bet big against shopping malls through a really interesting trade. 
He's actually become the largest short seller of shopping mall debt, structuring a bet against shopping malls that could pay out as much as 400 million bucks. Now this bet tracks the performance of the CMBX6 index, which tracks the value of 25 commercial mortgage-backed securities through the security called credit default swaps, which is a pretty complex thing, but basically it was used, if you saw the movie, The Big Short, where you had these hedge funds betting against the residential real estate sector uh, through uh, they bet against subprime mortgages through these credit default swaps. It's a very similar trade to that. However, instead of betting on residential real estate mortgages, as they did in the Big Short one, made famous through the uh, through the Big Short movie, here what Carl Icahn and others are doing, what and what they hope could be the Big Short 2.0, is they are betting against shopping mall mortgages through these credit default swaps. What this index has, it has significant exposure to loans made in 2012 to malls that have lately been running into difficulties. And it's no secret what's been happening at these shopping malls. You've had many of the core tenants running into a lot of problems. Basically the Amazon effect, a lot of shopping is going online, specifically these core department store tenants really suffering. You had Sears go bankrupt, JCPenney really struggling. You're seeing it through uh, others such as you know, Macy's. But thus far, it hasn't really worked. Uh, there had been uh, a hedge fund playing this space. They raised 300 million bucks, sustained heavy, heavy losses, betting against this index, so it hasn't worked. Thus far, we look at fundamentals of malls. Now they have suffered rising vacancies and falling foot traffic as shoppers migrate online, which has been happening. It's been a long-term trend, but many landlords have continued to service their debt by finding new tenants. Some owners have also been able to modify or secure extensions to their loans. So it's a really interesting dynamic such that you have lost these main department store tenants and other retailers but what we've seen is one way they have actually recovered that by more experience-based businesses gyms etc things of that nature so you got to think on this trade now this underlying index has climbed 20 percent year to date leading to early losses to icon on this bet makes you wonder is he wrong or is he just early yeah and absolutely so specific to the index so you'd mentioned that it does track the value of 25 cmbs um, commercial mortgage-backed securities and those 25 commercial mortgage-backed securities are really referencing 40 malls and so when alder hill management the hedge fund that you had mentioned that had raised money on the basis of this trade back in 2017 now they were forced to exit this trade um, earlier this year after two and a half years but they're really just you know closing their trade while icon is putting it on so quite opportunistic by icon but they made the prediction back in 2017 that 2017 would really be the tipping point that they were really banking on that being the correct timing for the trade and around that time there was a deck circulating uh, that I remember reading through at the previous firm that we were at and you know when I, at the time I just looked at it decided it was outside of my area of expertise never really thought about it again um, but I remember as well at the time that 
Credit Suisse analysts were talking about the fact that there was a lot of CMBS tourists, and you know we've talked about merger arb tourists and kind of the dangers inherent in that. By um, tourists, you mean non-experts? Yes, that were that were looking to get into a trade that's outside of their expertise, and it was really driving up the prices for credit default swaps. And then throughout 2018, Alder really ramped up their bets, and their expectation was that 25 out of the 40 malls that are tracked by the index would be in default by 2022. Now, as of today, um, I believe there's some analysis showing that about roughly three malls uh, have been delinquent on their loans since 2012. So this thesis so far hasn't played out. Now, that doesn't mean it still won't play out, but it hasn't yet. And, you know, what this really highlights, to me at least, is the danger of, number one, the danger of crowded trades, as this has become a very crowded trade. And the dynamics of the price movement of this index can be swayed, similar to what we were just talking about with low float IPOs. You can get a lot of interesting price dynamics in what would otherwise be a fairly illiquid index. Right. So many short sellers who've been burned on this trade now exiting, pushing the price further up. For the people that remain in the short selling trade. Um, another one is it really highlights the importance of understanding the in instruments that you are using to affect the thesis that you have. Because in this trade, not only do you need to know, or not only do you need to have your thesis on the fundamentals of the mole industry correct, um, including how the loans are structured and things of that nature on the fundamental side. But you also really need to understand how the instrument, a credit default swap, works, like how the different payout scenarios among the tranches work, the cost of carry of the instrument, which is estimated to be 5% per year on the lowest tranches and 3% per year annually for the higher tranches. Right. And by cost of carry, you mean the negative return or the payment that the investor needs to make just to hold on to the trade. Absolutely. So in this scenario, with such a high cost of carry, you really need to be right, but you also need to be right in an expedient fashion because so, oh, your your returns are being eaten away every day. Uh, so those were just a couple of takeaways that, that I had from uh, going over this situation. Right. So if you're making an insurance-like bet, which this trade is, say you're buying insurance on a house, and so in order to make it pay off and be... Uh, economic to you, then you need that house to burn down in uh, in quick fashion or else you're just stuck paying the insurance premiums month in and month out and uh, it's just a money losing trade. So Carl Icahn here having a big bet could pay off as much as 400 million if the big short 2.0 actually works, but that is to be seen thus far, kind of a hedge fund roadkill. Uh, others suffering as it hasn't worked out in time, and we'll see if he is successful over the next couple of years. Either way, this trade runs out by 2022. I believe that's how it's structured, so we'll know uh, over the next two to three years. We had another retirement of a hedge fund legend this week with Lewis Bacon shuttering his hedge fund Moore Capital after a 30-year run. Now, he founded his firm in 1989 with a $25,000 inheritance, and he was one of the really the big major global macro funds of his era. He delivered a net annualized return of 17.6% annualized over the past 30 years, which is over 21,000 
on a cumulative basis, just crushing the market. But his style was quite a bit different because he popularized trading on a global macro basis, which makes bets on everything from US equities to European bonds to Asian currencies, etc. Interest rates, big sort of overarching economic bets, not micro bets where you're betting on a stock price or a certain bond. You're really betting on currencies, interest rates, equity indices, etc. Now, in the first full year of his fund, he wagered that Saddam Hussein would invade Kuwait, which did happen and generated him an 86% return. Certainly, he started off on the right foot, but he decided now to return client capital, obviously, after an amazing run. Uh, but he's still going to run it as a family office, so manage internal capital for himself and behalf on other principles. Looking at returns, they certainly have come down significantly over the past few years. It's been substantially harder to generate those big macro gains, especially as a shoot from the gut fundamental trader. You're really seeing those types of investors go away and in their place, uh, the rise of quantitative, systematic investors, rules-based that uh, use a lot of data. You don't have star managers anymore. You just have algorithms and teams of computer program computer programmers and analysts that set these rules on how prices should move, and they generate returns that way. Got a statement from Bacon here. He stated. Although this has not been an easy decision, it will allow me the space to step away for significant periods of time when my other interests abound without ongoing weight and responsibility of looking after public investors' capital. So certainly there's a lot of pressure when you're running outside money. Not just that, but the guy's rich enough where he doesn't need to worry about that anymore. As of the end of the year, last year, they are running $9 billion. So the amount of fees that they're earning was significant. And he's clearly a billionaire, doesn't need to manage outside client capital, can just turn into a family office. He also acknowledged disappointing results for his main funds in recent years amid challenging trading conditions for his core strategy based on macro movements of currencies, interest rates, and other securities globally. He also noted competition for not just talent, but also pressure for lower fees had led to a challenging business model for funds like his. So really going out here, hanging up his gloves and going to run as a family office. It's interesting to note we've seen a number of hedge fund legends hang up the gloves over the past number of years, convert to a family office. They've obviously been tremendously successful, more than enough money that anyone could ever want. You had legends like Carl Icahn, Leon Cooperman, George Soros, Dan Druckenmiller, and David Tepper kicking out client capital, creating a family office, which uh, is interesting because you know, clients need somewhere to put money and it really gives the next generation of hedge fund managers uh, perhaps a shot uh, at those clients. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of his performance, you know, having a net annualized return of, of 17.6, I believe it was, uh, percent since 1989. Now, putting that into perspective, you know, from 1990 to 2010, global macro funds gained 14% on average. So quite a healthy return. But during that time, his returns were actually in the 30% annualized range. 
Then really in the last 10 years or so, but since 2010, global macro funds have basically been flat as well. And that's really similar to what Bacon was realizing as well was his returns over the, the last number of years. He hasn't been able to track the index. And the interesting aspect of that is back in 20, I believe it was early 2017, he came out saying that the Trump presidency would be very good for global macro as in his opinion, it would bring a lot more volatility back to the markets. And that really hasn't played out because as a global macro manager, what you really rely upon is volatility. That's how they make their money. And especially somebody like him who trades in a area of the market a lot. He does a lot of foreign exchange. He's been described as the best FX trader of all time by some of his peers. Uh, he really needs that volatility and he just didn't have that in the last number of years. So he's looking to remove himself from the markets. Right. And there's a couple of dynamics here that I wanted to touch on. Number one, it shows that generating good returns much easier when you're smaller. Obviously, his first year running 25 grand to generate huge returns, way easier than when you're running $9 billion, which he is running when he announced the closure. The second thing is markets have been become so much more competitive over the past 30 years that it's way, way more difficult because you have so many more smart people that know about the same types of trades that used to make you money and that competition reduces inefficiencies and makes the overall market more efficient making it more difficult to generate that outperformance and lastly as institutional investors have come into the hedge fund space over the past number of decades they've really demanded a lower volatility profile which has had the effect of reducing returns you can really only generate those big returns if you're willing to take that risk and if you do take that risk your nav is going to be quite a bit more volatile. Your returns are going to swing around in order to generate those big home run returns. And that's it for episode 41 of the Absolute Return Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please view more at absolutereturnpodcast.com. Feel free to leave us a review, recommend it to your friends and colleagues. Wish you a good luck of trading and investing this week, and we will chat with you next week. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.